Hello, I'm Lale Arakoglu, and welcome to Women Who Travel, a podcast for anyone who is curious about the world and excited to explore places both near and far from home. Whenever I visit my dad's side of the family in Turkey, it's usually impossible to leave a relative's house without having a variety of different dishes shoved in front of me. Regardless of the time of day or the fact that we've all, say, literally just had a three-hour lunch together, it's considered deeply rude if you don't eat everything because it's meant with such kindness, especially if, like me, you're a guest visiting from someplace else. Some of my favourite childhood memories or actually travel memories, are of being on the terrace at my family's house in Istanbul, overlooking the Bosphorus during long dinners on late summer evenings as the sound of the water laps in the background. And so it was such a joy to introduce my husband on his first trip to Turkey to some of those meals, and to that slightly overbearing level of kindness and generosity that comes with extended family welcoming new visitors into their home. I'll never forget watching him politely eat a piece of cheese, a food he detests, to appease a distant older cousin. After all, probably one of the most universal ways of showing hospitality is through food and drink. It's something that London-based Iraqi actor, cookbook author and theatre producer Dina Musawi understands inherently. It's not just thanks to her own background, but it's also through her work with refugees from different parts of the world, work that frequently relies on the kindness of strangers. I was born in England, but when I was five weeks old, my parents took me back to Iraq. So I was brought up in Iraq. But yes, my dad's from Iraq, but my mum is British-Ukrainian. So, But now most of my family are in Jordan or kind of scattered all over the world. Are there sort of, from I guess from those sort of early years or times when you've been able to go back to Iraq, have there been sort of characters that you've come across who you think have expressed like particular acts of kindness? So one little story is that a few, three or four years ago, I went to an arts festival in Turkey and I met a musician from Iraq and we kind of just connected because he was Iraqi and so was I and we got chatting loads and it was just one or two days that we were sort of at this festival. And then a year later, I went back to Mosul for the very first time. And he was from Mosul in northern Iraq. And I sort of texted him and just said, oh, I'm coming to Mosul. And he said, anything you need, I'm there. I will help you with everything. And he, I got a taxi there from Erbil, which was, a, I think it was two or three hour drive. And he met me and he just basically took me round the whole city and introduced me to loads of people. And I find that in England, you know, I live in London and People don't have that time for you. Everyone's just too busy. It's funny sometimes, I think, when, at least in my experience, where I've been travelling, where you have those interactions with people where they insist on paying for you or covering the cab or, you know, just being so generous. And there's this part of me which is always, like, actually kind of uncomfortable with it. And I sort of default to feeling like I'm somehow taking advantage, even though this person's actually just being really nice. Exactly, yeah. But I guess it's just kindness, isn't it? It's kindness and generosity and it's really beautiful. Yeah, and I guess it's sort of you have to look inwards and be like, why does this make me feel so uncomfortable? Yeah, and and also, admittedly, I'm not sure I would do the same. Would I do that if I had guests here? Would I say, I'll pay for your taxi and I'll pay for lunch? I, 
I'm not sure if I would or not. I don't know. No, and I think of when I've, I have people visit me in New York, I usually just sort of wave them off into the sunset and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that is great, though. And you then moved back to England. Yep. Still as a child. Yep. And you moved to Bradford in Yorkshire. Yeah. Was everyone welcoming? I mean, I feel like the North always has a reputation for being very welcoming and hospitable, but how did that actually manifest in real life? Yeah, I think, so I was about eight years old when we moved from Baghdad to Bradford. Great title for a film, isn't it? Bradford. <laughs> Baghdad to Bradford. And, you know, I had a, an accent. I, Arabic was my first language, so I spoke English with a broken accent. But we used to come to England as often as we could during the summer holidays. So it was quite familiar to me to be here. I do remember missing my cousins in Iraq. We escaped a war as well. So it's not like things were amazing over there. You know, there was always the threat. It was during the Iran-Iraq war, so it wasn't on our doorstep, but it was more on the borders. But you still would hear gunshots and you would hear the war sirens. And those are sort of memories that I still have. And if I ever hear a war siren now, I... I kind of gives shivers down my spine. We were just going to come for a year and then go back. And then we never went back. And then the Gulf War happened. And then it was kind of felt like it was war after war in Iraq. So we never gone back. You have, as an adult, you produced and directed Terrestrial Journeys, which was devised with Syrian women in refugee camps. During that experience, what were the stories that came out of working with those women that kind of emphasised the way that strangers help each other or go out of their way for other people? The first project I worked on was Antigone of Syria. And then that was with 60 women. And then I went back and I didn't produce or direct that. I just worked on it, training the women and working with women. And then a year later, I went back and produced and directed my own project called Terrestrial Journeys, which was very much devised from their own experiences. I think one thing I was always blown away by was the, the fact that there was so many women living in a refugee camp which didn't have the best conditions and they had big families, were not earning money at all, living in tiny, like, one-room or two-room apartments, if you even call them an apartment. And they were just so generous. So they would argue over who was going to cook us lunch the next day. So they would invite us over to their place to have lunch, and they would have cooked this massive feast that, like... If you saw some of the pictures, there's just so much food and you just think they've got barely two pennies to rub together and they have cooked us this incredible feast with like one tiny camping gas stove and then one woman would do it and then another one would get jealous and she'd go, come to mine tomorrow, tomorrow you come into my house, okay? And then next week, how come you haven't been to my house yet? And I'd go, oh, um, well, well, well maybe we'll come next week. <laughs> kind of like they were fighting over who and they would get offended if we didn't go to lunch at their house and and I just thought that was really beautiful and we were a lot of the time we would sit together we would cook together. Did any of the women that you were cooking with share any of their own stories? Yeah a lot of them I mean some of them are really inspiring some of them are really moving and some of them are really heartbreaking and some of them are funny. <laughs> so one woman 
she was telling me a story about... So she was living in this area in Damascus and it was under siege. So they had to... They left their house one day and they weren't allowed to go back. And she said, well... I think her husband or her brother-in-law got sick and she said, oh, I, ha I have to go back. I have to go back to the flat and get the chicken. And he goes, are you crazy? There's a war, there's rockets and missiles falling. And she said, we've got to get the chicken. We've got no money. We need to eat and chicken's good for you. So she convinced her husband to drive her back to their neighborhood. And she goes, give me the key for the house. And he was really angry with her. He said, you can't go down that street. There's missiles falling. She goes, give me the key. And she grabbed the key and she starts running down the street. A missile falls and she hides under a, a veranda. And she said, and I'm, and I'm sat under this veranda. And then she sees her house and she goes in, goes upstairs, opens the fridge and finds this boiled chicken still in the pan in the fridge. She takes the pan out, runs back out of the house runs down the street, hears another rocket falling and hides again. And she said, she said, and I was, I was crouching down and I thought, if I die now, they'll say Ahlam died for that chicken. <laughs> and she was like laughing about it. And um, anyway, it was just one of the, a really, really funny story. And that story made it into the show that we were making because it was just so brilliant. And, and she actually opened the show with that story and the audience loved it. Dina is the creative producer at Good Chance, the theatre company in the UK that created Little Amal, a towering 12-foot puppet of a 10-year-old Syrian refugee girl who recently visited New York. An artistic response to the global problem of displaced children, she's visited 12 countries since 2021, parading along streets, parks, and through other public spaces. Here she is in Times Square. We kind of saw that having this puppet made people react in a different way. It made them more friendly and more open and more inquisitive to this stranger walking through their city. So she walked from the border of Syria through Europe and she was welcomed by communities in lots of different countries who spoke lots of different languages and had different religious backgrounds and none of that mattered suddenly. Suddenly it was the human story and the human connection, even though she's a puppet. For those who haven't seen a picture of Amal, what does she look like? Well, she is, I think, 3.6 metres tall. Okay, so, so she's, she's quite, she's a tall big. girl. <laughs> she's tall, she's tall for her age, she's nine. <laughs> and she's got long, dark hair, big, big, big eyes with long eyelashes, a huge smile. She wears a pink skirt and she's got her hair sort of like half tied up and half down. And she's uh, definitely a presence when, when she walks through your town or your city. You definitely notice her. It's really become apparent to me that all of your work and, and the way that you've sort of become part of these different communities is like you're kind of like the embodiment of the theme. <laughs> did you intentionally move towards this sort of work or did it find you? I think it found me. I think when the war in Syria happened, 
in the early days, I kept seeing all this image on the news. And at the time I was living with my dad and my dad constantly had Arabic news on and Arabic channels. And it's just, it was relentless. It was just all the time. And I just kept feeling really like anxious. I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to help. And it was so heartbreaking to see what was happening to people. And and then I got the opportunity to, I met somebody at a dinner party. And then a couple of months later, she said, do you want to come and work with us on this project we're doing in Beirut, but we can't pay you. And I was like, I'll do it. I'll do it for free. And they paid for my accommodation and that was it. And I was like, yes, I'll be there. I'll be there. And I spent four months with them and I really loved it. And I just saw the impact that art can have on people who a lot of the women we worked with had never, ever experienced theatre before. And when I saw what that brought to them personally into their lives, I just thought, this is so powerful and I want to do more of it. Each week, we ask listeners to share stories of their travels in their own words. Today, we've got Kirsten Wing and Michelle Nicola, both of whom are talking about getting rescued. I was living in Abu Dhabi a few years ago and I had brought my dog with me and she lived a very kind of quiet apartment style life. And I'd heard about this dog beach from a fellow expat and she had told me that there was kind of this secret expat dog beach where we could let the dogs just run free. So one morning I decided to be brave and find this beach on my own. So um, I set off with these very basic directions to this island about 15 miles outside of the city of Abu Dhabi. I was on the highway and then I exited at this half constructed bridge, got onto this small sealed road and kept driving, trying to find this beach where I could let my dog go. And as I made my way through, I realized the road was running out and all I could see was sand. And having not been a very experienced Middle East expat, I did not realize or think about the consequences of driving a you know, normal car into the sand. So I decided I would just cut through this sand and hope that the beach was on the other side. So I, with my dog at my side, I drove into this sand and did not make it very far before I was completely stuck. My tires were just spinning, spinning, spinning and kicking up sand. And I was thinking the more I hit the accelerator, the more stuck I'm going to be. And so I stopped, I turned off the car and I sat there thinking, what do I do now? Because I looked all around my surroundings and there was truly nothing. It was just sand as far as I could see. Everything I've ever read said, never leave your vehicle in an emergency. I considered taking Foxy and walking her back to the main road, but it was a long way. And of course the heat would just get worse and there was truly nobody out there. And I, I did not think that was a wise thing to do. So I stayed with my car. And after a while, again, of course, sitting there kind of still pondering what I could do. And then I looked up and out of nowhere, I saw these three figures coming toward me. And I was thinking, oh my gosh, who are these people that are coming at me in the middle of nowhere? I got out of my car and they got closer and I realized they were construction workers and they did not speak any English and they just immediately took control and they asked me to gestured at me to get out of the car with my dog. And so they got in the car and then one of them got in the car and the other two were outside digging in the sand, trying to release my tires. And then they were rocking the car and shifting the car. And eventually they did move it free out of the sand and was able to push it further, further away from where I was closer to the main road. 
And I was so, so incredibly grateful. These gentlemen just appeared literally out of nowhere in this miraculous fashion and saved me from what could have been a really catastrophic situation. And also just as a single female traveler being vulnerable in that situation, you know, three men against me could have been a totally different scenario, but all these men were doing was just being incredibly kind and rescuing me from a very silly situation I shouldn't have gotten myself into. I did make it to the beach with Foxy. She did get to run around the beach. And once I went there the first time, I went back regularly, but I really can never thank these three men enough my friend and I were both teachers and so we were looking forward to uh we were done with school in June and so we were looking forward to going somewhere she had always wanted to go to Scotland and I did too and we wanted to just see as much as we could so we were traveling on the road from Edinburgh to Inverness and we were only 30 or so minutes into our drive so we were driving it was a two-lane road in each direction and we had hit on the passenger side the median we our car spun and flipped and we landed upside down and I don't know that we were upside down more than a couple of seconds before the construction site just on the other side of the median. I could see them from the car running towards us to either side of us and they were talking to us about how they were going to open the doors, what we needed to do to unbuckle ourselves and how they were going to get us out. And I think within moments of getting us out of the car, over to the side of the road, they just had put their jackets on us. It wasn't rainy or anything, but it was cold and and we were visibly shaken up by the whole situation. And so the the jackets just kind of became part of us and, and was a manifestation of just how the rest of that encounter would go. We were so cared for by all of these, all of these people. They had called for an ambulance and we had expressed that we were uh, didn't want that, that we were, you know, concerned about the cost of it all. When we said that, one of the people that was helping me kind of held my shoulders and said, you know, it's this isn't America. You're it's free here. When it was time for us to be driven to this town where there was another rental car place, we were about to take the jackets off and they insisted that we keep them. And I'm sure we burst into tears again and and thanked them so much, but it, it really became our security blankets for the rest of the trip. Remember, to stay up to date on all things women who travel, make sure you're subscribed to the Women Who Travel newsletter via the link in our show notes and that you're following Women Who Travel on Instagram. After the break, a journalist fleeing Ukraine receives help from foreign media. Maria Romanenko is a Ukrainian journalist who fled her country the day after the Russian invasion in February of this year and found that the journalists from around the world who wanted accounts of her experience 
actually gave her as much support as she gave them. You talk about the strangers that helped you along the way and also people you knew and loved ones. Talk about some of those people that you encountered from the start of that journey to when you got to the border. The people that were part of that journey as we were escaping. So the first one was uh, definitely my dad, because on the 23rd of February in the evening, he ran me to say that he's heard something bad would happen in central Kiev, which is where I was living. So he was like, it's probably best if you come to my place for tonight. And he lives like 12 miles away from Kiev. So still very, very close, but better than being Bangon in the centre. So we got a taxi to his place and we stayed there overnight. I slept all right. You know, I had my earplugs in. I didn't hear anything. But around 7 a.m., my partner starts shaking me and it's like, wake up, wake up. And I was like, what's going on? It's like all these bombs being dropped everywhere in the country. Jazz started saying that we needed to get out. My dad was like, well, I'm not sure that's the best idea because everybody would be doing the same thing right now. Uh, It's probably better to wait a couple of days. And my partner was like, no, 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 I'm not waiting anything. You know, I'll go on my own if that's what it takes. I remember you wrote something that kind of like stuck with me in your piece, which was that for your partner, he wasn't from Ukraine. And so it was sort of easy for him to make that. It was such a clear cut decision for him to be to be like, well, I'm going, you know, I'm leaving. And for you, obviously, it's a lot more emotionally wrought. I'd love to know a little bit, once you actually hit the road, what was that drive like with your father? There was so much happening at that point. We were on the road for such a long time. But during that journey, I was also on the phone to various media organisations. What were those interactions like? And what were those journalists' responses? Because clearly they wanted you for the content. But do you feel like there was something more of a human connection having those conversations with people who were in a different country, in a different place, watching from afar? Basically, my phone just kept ringing. And I think one of the reasons is because I gave the first interview to, I think it was BBC Cardiff or something like that. And what happens with the BBC that once you give an interview to one of them, they just share your number across the whole BBC platform. So I got like lots of calls from like BBC Northern Ireland, BBC Scotland, BBC London, BBC Cambridge. And there were also people like The Guardian rang and we did like a video thing of me just talking from the car and describing what I was seeing. It was kind of hard to really understand how many of them I talked to that day. That The journey was 10 hours long, but I think eight hours out of the whole journey, I was constantly on the phone. And I think that helped me because I tend to get very anxious. And if I'm in a quiet place and I can reflect what's going on, like it's easy for me to just like break down and start crying. It was like that sort of human interaction and that human connection gave you like a place to focus on when everything else felt... Yeah, it just gave me something to concentrate on instead of concentrating on what's actually going on. No, it was uh, such a strange environment at the border. I think because we spent such a long time in one place and surrounded by the same people, whether you want to or not, you kind of get to know other people around you and talk to them. 
we were in this sort of cage. I don't really know. I, I don't really have other words to describe it. It literally felt like a cage because it was a, a small section that was cordoned off with fence and on two sides and two walls on the other two sides that was probably only good to fit like 50 people but in reality there was a list of 2,000 probably people in there just all crushing and because of all that crushing a lot of people felt sick including myself but also at the same time my period started at the same time and I, that just made me very very sick and when you talk about acts of kindness you know it's just like somebody I was like I need some water there was no access to food or water or drinks or even toilet facilities at that point because we were all so crushed together. I needed some water because I was feeling sick and I just drank somebody else's water because people were happy to offer that. You've painted such a great picture of that journey and what it was like at the border. And now I'm interested to know a little bit about once you got to the UK and you got to Manchester where you're now currently based, what were some of the acts of kindness that you received there. I'd love to hear whether there were any in-person interactions you had as you started to actually immerse yourself in this new place, which isn't easy in the best of times. Who are some of the people you met that you think you'll think about for a while? There were so many, to be honest, that were really, really kind to me in the first few weeks. There were some media publications like offering me very, very little work, but paying very generously for it, which all seemed just like, you know, a way to support me. They didn't really care what I would do for them, but they just wanted to contribute towards me settling in, which was really, really nice. Or even we went to an Indian restaurant in central Manchester, where when it was time for us to pay, they were like, we, we know who you are, we saw you on TV, there's no need for you to pay. And I think that just hit me, that instance hit me especially hard because that was the first time I relaxed in a very long time during that meal. Uh, Des and I were just having a dinner on our second night in the UK, I think. And before that, he showed me a video of Borodyanka in the Kiev region being bombed and it was all black, all ashes and everything. And that was the first time I could take in all of that and I cried before that. And, you know, that was like a very weird dinner experience, seeing people dining happily and discussing like very, very trivial things. And we just fled a war. And then to have the waiter say, you don't need to pay because we followed your journey and we know who you are. I just broke out in tears again. And I was just like to the waiter, I was just like, can I give you a hug? And he was like, yeah. And I was just like, thank you so much. And he was like, well, that's just the least we can do. You started doing walking tours for Ukrainians who have arrived in the UK. What do you think, and you know, is to help people who are newly arrived get to know the place and you can pass on some knowledge that you already have. What do you hope people will gain from them? And also, what do you feel like you gain from leading those walking tours or participating in them? Yes, well, I think it's a way for me to give back. And I lived in the UK before I went to a university here. But also I have more support than most people around the UK have because I have a partner here. And a lot of Ukrainians come here without knowing anybody, without ever having been to the UK, without knowing the language much. And we had the first one in May. We had over 100 people sign up. And then we had three more after that, pretty much doing them monthly but coming back to your question of what I'm hoping to achieve with this, well, A, it's a way to offer people something to do as a family. The UK government, unfortunately, hasn't organised many things for Ukrainians to engage in once they're here. 
But another thing that these stories allowed people to do is just to meet each other. And I don't think many people realize this until they actually are in that environment, how important it is to sort of talk through your experiences. So there were some people from the same city and they would never have met each other before, but they met for the first time during the tour and they would realize that they have mutual friends I love that. And I feel like you're experiencing that as there's like more of a sense of community forming among Ukrainians here in Manchester. Is there a food or a song or a sound or smell that immediately transports you back home when you're in Manchester now? Is there one thing that anchors you back to Kiev? So every Saturday there's a Ukrainian rally between 2 and 4 p.m. I think that's A, it's good to still make sure that there's that awareness in the world and in Manchester. But B, it always just brings tears to my eyes because they play Ukrainian songs that became popular since February 24th. Is there a particular song? There's one called I Don't Have a Home, which actually ironically kind of came out before February 24th. I think when you listen to that, it's in Ukrainian, but when you listen to that, kind of think well it's about all of us now because we don't really have a home I don't really have anywhere to come back at the moment and I'm not sure when I'll be able to come back yeah so probably you know there's a few but I think that one always kind of brings tears to my eyes So coming full circle, little Amal's greeted by music and crowds on her journeys across the world. While Maria, in her newly adopted British city, initiates and leads regular walking tours for other Ukrainian immigrants around Manchester. Thank you for listening. I'm Lale Arikoglu, and you can find me, as always, on Instagram at Hanna. And follow along with Women Who Travel on Instagram at Women Who Travel. You can also join the conversation in our Facebook group. Alison Leighton Brown is our composer. Jennifer Nelson is our engineer. Jude Kampfner from Corporation for Independent Media is our producer. Next week, rituals and ceremonies. For more stories from Women Who Travel, visit cntraveller.com. <laughs>